the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. I'm Seth, 602-508-0960, 602-508-0960. If you'd like to join or contribute to the conversation verbally, love to have you. David uh, Dahl, my producer, is working diligently with our new software. One hour down, David. We seem to be doing okay. We're hitting into hour two. Is it working out for you okay-ish? Yeah, fingers Ish. crossed again. Yeah. No, 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 no. No fingers crossed. No such thing as luck. Uh, what did what did Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes say? He said, um, oh, I'll get the quote in a moment. I haven't thought of it in a long time. Uh, effort, effort, effort is all. No, it was, uh, well, anyway, let me not uh, get caught up on that. Jean, yesterday, Catherine, Karen Jean-Pierre, the White House spokesperson's uh, press secretary, Karen Jean-Pierre said, this is a president who's the mu- the mode in which the inevitable comes to pass is effort. That's the quote. The mode in which the inevitable comes to pass is effort, David. Write that down. John uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes. The mode in which the inevitable comes to pass is effort. All right. Yesterday, Karin Jean-Pierre declared, this is a president who's had a historic administration in just two years. This is a president who's had a historic administration in just two years. Byron Donalds, congressman, you know him from Florida, heard that, and he put together a little video I just wanted to run for you and run and play by you. If you want it, you can get it off uh, Twitter or X at Rep. Donald's Press. If you watch him, if you've seen what he's done in the last two years, this is a president has had a historic administration in just two years. Every week is something new. Inflation's highest increase in four decades. A baby formula shortage. The supply chain crisis on full display in grocery stores. The Keystone XL pipeline has been blocked. Canceled its planned oil and gas lease sales in Alaska. Halt oil and gas leasing and drilling on federal land. Gas prices soaring to the highest average ever recorded. Mortgage rates have soared to the highest level in 22 years. Number of military service members being discharged for refusing the COVID vaccine is growing. The president is ordering nearly all federal workers get vaccinated within 75 days, eliminating their option to be tested. CDC coordinated with the teachers' unions to slow the school reopening process. Eighth grade U.S. history and civic test scores dropped last year to their lowest levels ever reported. The FBI directed agents to use counterterrorism measures to track parents' critical giving the FBI a list of targeted customers. The FBI's Richmond Field recently published an internal document promising to punish both radical traditionalist Catholics who walked at the direction of Department Justice. Chaotic evacuation. The drunk comparison to the fall of Saigon. 13 U.S. troops killed in Kabul this week. But the U.S. is now moving its embassy personnel out of the capital. Close the U.S. embassy in Belarus. Air evacuation. 
operation of the American embassy in Sudan. U.S. embassy personnel are being told to leave. The crime has been spiking in many parts of the country. Illegally crossing over the border from Canada at record levels. Crisis on the border with Mexico. Humanitarian crisis and a policy clearly in need of reform. No show, Biden. It's been 172 days. I'm furious. Why are we getting put in the back pocket? Why are we being ignored? This is a president has had a historic administration in just two years. Yes, indeed he has. For anyone who might be in listening shot, uh, earshot of this um, of this broadcast, if you're going to make a compilation video, do me a favor. We don't need the music. It 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 just ruins it. Just give us the straight dope. It'll get replayed more. I guarantee it. It'll get replayed more if there's no distracting music around it. Okay. That said, yeah, historic two years. You forgot about some of that stuff. That would make a great ad for the uh, Republican Party. You just do that, and then um, what was the campaign slogan, uh, had enough? Whose campaign slogan was that? Do you remember that, uh, David Dahl? Do you have that one? It was the 1964 slogan uh, for Republicans. It was the congressional campaign slogan for Republicans in 1964, had enough. That was the bumper sticker. Um, you just do, do, a, do a series like that and write, had enough, question mark. I think it would be powerful. I think it would be powerful. Uh, this is obviously, uh, as I was mentioning in the last segment of the last hour, an issue that uh, fasten your seatbelts. We're going to be going through this again. Um, the singular cruelty of America toward children. Will lockdowns finally face a reckoning? They won't because I think they're preparing to get ready to do it all over again. This is from James Freeman at the Wall Street Journal. The best way to prevent politicians and bureaucrats from ever again inflicting on American kids the learning losses, the social isolation, and the staggering financial burden of the COVID lockdowns is to ensure a just reckoning for the destruction they caused. Uh, Perhaps this will happen. John Festerwald reports this in the Bakersfield, California. This fall, in courtroom in Oakland, Lawyers will re-examine the pandemic's impact on K-12 schools in California, a subject many people might prefer to forget about but can't because, like COVID itself, the effects are inescapable. The state of California defends itself over accusations that it mishandled remote learning during COVID, starting in the spring of 2020, and then failed to alleviate the harm on its most vulnerable children as they experienced it then and still experience it now. Alameda County Superior Court Judge Brad Seligman denied the state's request to dismiss the case outright earlier this month. There's no dispute that low income, particularly students of color in particular, had less access to remote learning during the nine plus months they learned from home. This was a finding Seligman wrote in his 12 page ruling. The question that needs answering, he said, is whether the state's level of response is so insufficient that it violated the children's right to an equal opportunity for an education under California's Constitution. Uh, The case is against the state of California and the State Board of Education, as well as the California Department of Education. And the plaintiff is a black eight-year-old twin in third grade in Oakland. Uh, When the lawsuit was filed, she was at least uh, in third grade in Oakland in November 20. And she's the lead plaintiff, along with 15 unnamed student plaintiffs from Oakland and Los Angeles. The trial's scheduled to begin in November. Uh, The reason, by the way, in case you're wondering why they're unnamed, 
in uh, most cases, un, unnamed uh, plaintiffs, excuse me, underage plaintiffs go unnamed. That's why you'll sometimes see uh, initials or you'll see you know various pseudonyms used, not like the kind the vice president was using as a grown, full-grown adult, the three different pseudonyms he was using to create 3,400 communications, mostly by email with his son about his business dealings that are now uh, stack that are now being held at the uh, National Archives that we're begging for release of. Not like that. This is to protect children, not to protect uh, not to protect corrupt older adults uh, using their political office uh, to obtain uh, sinecures and other financial rewards by trading off their name, as Joe Biden was. If you missed that story, you can get it from the first hour or the New York Post, which is covering it. CNN is not. New York Times is not. Washington Post is not. Uh, James Freeman on this piece at the Wall Street Journal writes, of course, the California government has responded to the lawsuit with a spirit of good faith and a commitment to transparency. Just kidding. As the editorial board at the San Diego Union Tribune writes, state education officials didn't just reject the idea that they bore any blame for the nightmares faced by many students in Los Angeles and Oakland. They threatened Stanford Graduate School of Education professor Thomas D. and other education researchers researchers with legal action if they provided information used in this or any lawsuit deemed adverse to the California Department of Education. Let me pause on that for a moment. When you look at the kinds of coercion that takes place at these kind of open but really truly closed environments like public universities, it's it, it takes a rather deep dive, and it takes a rather deep dive by interviewing the people that felt the pressure at these public universities. The coercion and intimidation is a very highly... Uh, highly skilled played political game by the administrations by the administrators who tow the orthodox the line of the orthodoxy it's a very skillful game they can make life very uncomfortable for you and here's but one example one lifting of the veil of that when it comes to the California Department of Education uh, the editorial board of the San Diego Union Tribune writes, to insist that researchers can only use school data in a way that is neutral or makes the department look good is perverse and antithetical to what should be the goals of public education. Had such policies been in place 20 years ago, they could have kept the lid on perhaps the worst scandal in the history of public schools in California, the 2005 report by Harvard researchers that credibly alleged the state had for years knowingly exaggerated graduation rates especially among Latino and black students, by relying on what was plainly misleading and inaccurate education. Uh, let's talk more about the lockdown regimes when we come right back. We'll be right back. 602 Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. I was just thinking about that Smokey the Bear ad you just heard. Those uh, Smokey the Bear ads have been going on for a long time prevention campaign. They've reduced, according to the Smithsonian, Smokey the Bear campaign has reduced forest fires by 70%, saving millions of acres and innumerable lives. I was thinking about that in the context, what I was talking about in my uh, monologue, opening monologue, about uh, the drug problem, which causes so many other problems, from crime to education deficits, workplace and traffic accidents, obviously, uh, death and poisoning and suicides as well. 
But, you know, you think about what they're doing, that story I read from Marvin Olasky in San Francisco, where you have public health workers or people calling themselves public health workers at an institution calling itself the city's public health department, going to these homeless tent encampments and offering up needles and syringes and pipes and foil to help these drug users not get off drugs, not teach any kind of prevention message, but to make their drug use easier, to make it easier. They're all, they're all going to die. They're all going to die. And that's, that's the plan that the San Francisco Department of Public Health seems to think is the right thing to do, their version of the humane thing to do. We don't do this with hardly any other public health problem. We don't do it with forest fires. We don't do it with cigarettes. We don't do it with drunk driving. We don't make it easier to do those things. We make it harder to do those things with a serious message of prevention. Well, we'll talk to you more about that. I'm working on with a good group of fine people on an effort to counter that and to put us in the posture with the drug crisis the same way we put in the posture with everything from forest fires to drunk driving to cigarette smoking. It can be done. I don't think people realize the enormity of the drug crisis. It's not just the streets of San Francisco. It's uh, the streets of a lot of cities. And it's also in the leafy suburbs. If you want an image, think of, think of two airlines, two civilian commercial airlines, airplanes, crashing into each other over our skies every single day in America. That's the death toll. That's the death toll from illegal and dangerous drug use. Two airplanes crashing into each other every single day. Okay, um, I was talking to you about, you know, there are health problems and there are health problems. It's amazing to me what we focus on. You know, we, um, we're in this weird area in public health right now where we, we're like, as C.S. Lewis put it, we're uh, watching the flood and running around looking for fire hoses. John Tierney over at the Manhattan Institute now used to be the science reporter for the New York Times. No masks, please. We're rational. Maskaholics are incorrigible. The rest of us should pay them no heed. Unfazed by data, scientific research, or common sense, the maskaholics are back. In response to an uptick in COVID cases, they've begun reinstating mask mandates. From Atlanta to Hollywood to Syracuse, and even you'll see it here in Arizona. Never mind, he writes, that at least 97% of Americans have COVID antibodies in their blood as a result of infection, vaccination, or both. Never mind that actual experts, the ones who studied the scientific literature before 2020 and drew up plans for a pandemic, advised against masking the public. Never mind that their advice has been further bolstered during the pandemic by randomized clinical trials and rigorous observational studies failing to find an effect of masks and mask mandates. Scientific evidence cannot overcome the maskaholic's faith. It's tempting to compare them with the villagers, Tierney writes, in Cambodia, who erected scarecrows in front of their huts to ward off the coronavirus, but that's not fair to the villagers. Their ting-mong, as the magic scarecrows are called, at least didn't hurt any of their neighbors. The mask mandates imposed harms on the public, 
that were well known before COVID, which is why occupational safety regulations limited workers' mask usage. Dozens of studies had demonstrated mask-induced exhaustion syndrome, whose symptoms include an increase of carbon dioxide in the blood, difficulty breathing, dizziness, drowsiness, headache, and diminished ability to concentrate and think. It was no surprise during the, the, during the pandemic when adverse effects of masks were reported in a study of healthcare workers in New York City. More than 70% of the workers said that prolonged mask wearing gave them headaches, and nearly a quarter blamed it for impaired cognition. By the way, now do children. A possibly toxic effect of prolonged mask wearing, particularly for pregnant women, children, and adolescents, was identified in a review of the scientific literature published this year by German researchers. They warn that mask wearers are rebreathing carbon dioxide at levels linked with adverse effects on the body's cardiovascular, respiratory, cognitive, and reproductive systems. Writing for City Journal, Jeffrey Anderson summarized their conclusions, quote, While eight times the normal level of carbon dioxide is toxic, research suggests that mask wearers, specifically those who wore masks for more than five minutes, are breathing in 35 to 80 times normal levels, close quote. Because of research linking elevated carbon dioxide levels with stillbirths, the German researchers note the U.S. Navy began limiting the level on its submarines when female crews began serving. The researchers warned that this level of carbon dioxide is often exceeded when wearing a mask, especially an N95 mask, and they point to, they point to evidence that mask usage may be related to the increase in stillbirths worldwide, including the U.S., during the pandemic. They also observed that no such increase occurred in Sweden where the vast majority of citizens followed the government's recommendation not to wear masks. No drug with all these potential side effects would be recommended, much less mandated for the entire population. And a drug that flunked its clinical trials wouldn't even be submitted for approval. Yet the CDC, disdaining any cost-benefit analysis, continues to recommend masking for all Americans on indoor public and for everyone living in areas with high rates of COVID transmission. The start of the pandemic, you'll recall even Anthony Fauci advised against masks because there was no evidence of their efficacy. But then, in response to media hysteria, he and the CDC went on to recommend masks anyway and justified themselves by citing cherry-picked data and consistently flawed studies. Meanwhile, the CDC has continued to ignore or downplay the much stronger evidence against masks, most notably a review of randomized clinical trials published in January by Cochrane, the preeminent authority for evaluating medical evidence. The Cochrane review concluded that wearing a mask of any kind, quote, probably makes little or no difference, close quote, quote, in reducing the spread of COVID flu or respiratory illnesses. Maskaholics were reduced to arguing that masks' effects were too subtle to be detected in clinical trials. Imagine a drug company trying to make that argument to the FDA. But the masks' futility was also evident in COVID trends around the world. Unmasked Swedes fared much better than other Europeans forced to wear masks. And a study comparing states across the U.S. found no association between mask mandates and the spread of COVID. The mandate's irrelevance was especially obvious in a graph tra- tracking weekly changes in COVID rates, weekly uh, changes in COVID rates and mask policies during the past first two years of the pandemic. 
Are global leaders developing solutions that promote freedom and quality of life, or are they creating problems, enforcing solutions that only benefit the elite? Midas Gold Group believes it's the latter. From draconian COVID restrictions, the kind we were talking about, the decimation of small businesses and changed election laws, Midas Gold Group believes your finances will be next. Under the guise of protecting you, you'll get monetary expansion, national debt, and reduced purchasing power. And their central bank digital currency will virtually eliminate your savings and purchasing privacy. The answer? Convert a portion of your savings or IRA to physical gold and silver. Precious metals are a private currency. They've been used to store wealth throughout history. And um, thousands of you already know and trust the veterans at the Midas Gold Group, just like Seb Gorka and myself, because they're fighting for your financial freedom and privacy. Give the Midas Gold Group a call today at 480-360-3000. That's 480-360-3000. Or visit them online at MidasGoldGroup.com. Any of you catch the story of the student uh, at Colorado Springs who was... uh, in a viral video, a video that's now gone viral, uh, who was uh, being sanctioned for having a picture of the Gadsden flag on his backpack. Did you see this, David? I know others were watching it. I got some emails on it. The story is um, maybe maybe not fully complete. There's there's uh, some breaking news on it that it may not have just been the Gadsden flag that was offensive, but some other uh, some other um, patches. And uh, we'll we'll find out. Uh, we certainly will find out. As I was saying, just I think only yesterday, any story that uh, raises your eyebrows needs to be obviously investigated. Sometimes things are too bad to be true. Sometimes they're too good to be true. Often they are. But you know, there was a lot of commentary early on the story that I want to talk about with regard to the Gadsden flag being a symbol of slavery which it most certainly was not. Are you familiar with what we're talking about? It's the coiled snake um, that's uh, it's had various versions. Um, it was used during uh, the French and Indian War in 1754. Uh, Benjamin Franklin used it. Benjamin Franklin used it for a woodcut, and it said join or die. That's another version of the snake. You've seen it cut in various pieces with each, with each piece representing one of the colonies. Uh, Paul Revere used it. These were not pro-slavery people. In fact, I, you know, this is what the 1619 Project has done to us. It has painted with such a broad brush that we are to believe that every part of America from its very beginning was not only steeped in racism, but in the justification and promotion of slavery. It's not true. It's not true. And even many of our founding fathers, for example, Benjamin Franklin, uh, he he published he published pamphlets against slavery. Um, he published a pamphlet against slavery. He who used the Gadsden snake, right, the Gadsden flag, writing: "Slavery is such an atrocious debasement of human nature that its very extirpation, which means removal, if not performed with solicitous care." may sometimes open a source of serious evils. He went on to say, The unhappy man who has long been treated as a brute animal too frequently sinks beneath the common standard of the human species. The galling chains that bind his body do also fetter his intellectual faculties and impair their social affections of his heart. 
Custom to move like a mere machine, by the will of a master, reflection is suspended. He has not the power of choice, and reason and conscience have but little influence over his conduct, because he is chiefly governed by the passion of fear. He is a poor and friendless person, perhaps worn out by extreme labor, age, and disease. Um, you know, that's the very argument that James Baldwin was making in the 1960s about racism and segregation in the South. He could have gotten it. He could have gotten that very argument. If you go back and watch his debates, particularly his famous debate with uh, William Buckley, uh, some, what, 55, 60 years ago now, and you listen to uh, him, you will see he is making the Benjamin Franklin point right there about racism and what it does, as Benjamin Franklin was saying with regard to slavery, how it debases the person, rendering them, of course, such as an animal in physical practice, but also psychologically and mentally as well. Yeah. What year was that famous Buckley debate? Uh, It was 1965, I think. I think it was 1965. But anyway, that was the same argument of James Baldwin. Be right back. Thinking a little bit about how this country is turning on itself. By the way, that Benjamin Franklin, those Benjamin Franklin writings against slavery, which I said were so comparative uh, and analogous to um, the kinds of things that were being said uh, in 1965, I um, in 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 the anti-racial anti-racial movement of 19, in the 1960s. I was, you know, you're not going to find any of that. You're just not going to find any of that in the 1619 Project. Um, it, it, it's amazing how much they whitewash our history so that the argument James Baldwin made in the 1960s, along with many others, finding perhaps its origins certainly intellectual comparisons to the writings of certain founders like Benjamin Franklin. You're not going to find any of that in the 1619 Project. And the irony is they criticize us for wanting to censor or whitewash history, particularly when it comes to matters of race. They're the ones doing it, not us. They're the ones doing it, depriving us of the majestic parts of our history. None of us want to hide the ugly parts of it. We don't do that here, at least not in this movement. That great tribute to the Americans, that great radio tribute to the Americans by Gordon Sinclair. We ought to play that sometime. Young David, I bet you don't know it. You'd love it. We haven't played it during your tenure. Great Canadian broadcaster named Gordon Sinclair. You'll want to to listen to this tonight. He gave a uh, broadcast. He was a Canadian broadcaster. He was kind of the Paul Harvey of Canada, and it was called The Americans. And it was hugely popular because it was this Canadian defending America. Um, to stand up for yourselves, you know? And one of the things he said in there is one of the great things about America is they don't hide. We don't hide our problems like other regimes. 
particularly in the 1970s. He said, what was the phrase, Bill, you'll remember it. He said, we hang them in the front window. And that Wasn't that the phrase? We hang our problems right there in the front window for the whole world to see. I think that's how we put it. And that's what we do with our, Amer- or what we believe we should do with our American history. Warts and all. But the 1619ers and the BLM educate, educrats, they, they, they don't believe in warts and all. They just believe in warts and that's all. That's their view. And it's a terrible thing to do to this country because, as, uh, as you often hear me quote Jean-Francois Ravel, clearly a civil, in a book with a great title, How Democracies Perish, he said, clearly a civilization that feels guilty for everything it is and does will lack the energy and conviction to defend itself. I was put in mind of this with a, um, with a quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn I was unaware of, from a book of his I was unaware of, uh, that was cited by a good friend, a dear friend, actually, and occasional guest here, Mayor Jolovitz, great educator in town. A 1975 book by Alexander Solzhenitsyn called "Warning to the West," and it's a it's a it's a collection of his speeches, and the quote is just fantastic. Human nature is full of riddles and contradictions. Why is it that societies with access to every kind of information suddenly plunge into lethargy, into a kind of mass blindness, a kind of voluntary self deceptions? And I looked at the full quote from the Solzhenitsyn book, the uh, full explanation where I was looking for his answer, his answer anyway. And he writes, one of these riddles is how is it that people have been crushed by the sheer weight of slavery and cast to the bottom of the pit can nevertheless find the strength to rise up and free themselves first in spirit and then in body? Think of those who fought back against communism, particularly as the walls were falling in the 19, in 1989. Then he writes, while those who soar unhampered over the peaks of freedom suddenly lose the taste for freedom, lose the will to defend it, and hopelessly confused and lost, almost begin to crave slavery. Or again, he writes, why is it the societies which have been Benumbed for half a century by lies, they have been forced to swallow, find within themselves a certain lucidity of heart and soul, which enables them to see things in their true perspective and to perceive the real meaning of events, where societies with access to every kind of information plunge into lethargy, into a kind of mass blindness, a kind of voluntary self-deception. Boy, did Solzhenitsyn put his finger on it. That was from 1975. He could have been writing about today. Could have been writing about today. But, you know, that's one of the great crimes against our country and against the education our children should receive about this country. With regard to our crimes, where those, how does, how does Solzhenitsyn put it, those who, um, who, have, um, who have soared, through the peaks unhampered, who have soared unhampered over the peaks of freedom, suddenly lose their taste for freedom. Of course you saw this in COVID, where people almost delighted, almost delighted in their immiseration and their incarceration, societal incarceration. Almost delighted in it. Shamed those who wouldn't join them. Almost as if people had left Plato Republic's cave 
and seen the light and then go back in the cave and the people in the cave want to kill them. The people who are still chained in the cave pre-enlightenment want to kill those who have seen the light. You know, it's, it's an interesting thing in that cave uh, analogy, in that cave, in that cave, um, cave metaphor that, that, uh, that Plato uses in the Republic. He says, when the people who did escape their chains and got out into the light, the first thing that happened to them was they were blinded by the light. And it took them a while to adjust. It took them a while to adjust before they went back in to tell the truth to those who were still enslaved and imprisoned in the cave. And those who were still enslaved and imprisoned, as I say, wanted to kill those who were enlightened. We got that feeling during COVID too. But why is it now, after all this soaring unhampered over the peaks of freedom, why is it that all the people who couldn't wait to help tear down the wall in Berlin and everywhere else, analogously. Why were they modeling themselves after America just at the same point that America was beginning to buy into the ideology we had defeated? Why was that? We were plunged into lethargy, into a kind of mass blindness and a kind of voluntary self-deception. Why is Marxism more popular now today after its landmark and well-documented defeats? Why is it more popular here than ever before? Why is it more popular here now than during the House on Americans Activities Committee in the McCarthy area? Why is it more popular here now and more credible? Why is that? Solzhenitsyn puts his finger on it. We'll talk more about that. We'll be right back. Sponsor of the show, Why Refi, I've been getting a great response from you all day, and I thank you uh, for uh, your work with them and for inquiring with them and supporting an investment that actually helps people. And um, just to review, with Why Refi, yes, uh, you can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return, and it's not correlated to the Federal Reserve or the stock market. If you're worried about stock market volatility, if you're worried about inflation, if you're worried about talk of a recession, you can get a fixed 10.25% rate of return. You can turn your income on or off, compound it, whatever you like. There are absolutely no fees. There is no penalty on principle. If you ever need your money back, think of that freedom. And your monthly statement comes with no surprises. Uh, check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. You can also visit them. They're on Scottsdale Road in the 101. You won't get a sales pitch. Um, I promise you, you won't be asked to sign anything. They leave that stuff up, the sales pitch, up to me. They just like talking about what they're doing. If you play trumpet, they might offer you that. They've got a few trumpets over there, some trumpet players over there. Uh, or you can give them a call at 888-YREFI24. That's 888-YREFI24. If you're looking for a solid investment that helps people, contact my friends at YREFI. Debted to my friend Mayor Jolovitz for pointing out this Solzhenitsyn quote um, from this 1975 book or collection of speeches of his that so beautifully predicts the, um, the lack of will that the West was going through. Solzhenitsyn writes, I could never have imagined the extreme degree to which the West actually desired to blind itself to the world's situation, the extreme degree to which the West had already become a world without a will, a world gradually 
petrifying in the face of the danger confronting it, a world oppressed above all by the need to defend its freedom. It says there's a German proverb which runs, Mut velorin alles velorin, when courage is lost, all is lost. And there's a Latin one, loss of reason is the true harbinger of destruction. Loss of reason is the harbinger of destruction. But what happens to a society in which both these losses combine, the loss of courage and the loss of region? What happens when they intersect? Solzhenitsyn said, that's what the West is going through today. You look at all these great philosophers who studied this stuff, whether it's Orwell or Jean-Francois Ravel or Vaclav Havel or Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and they're all saying the same thing. And we're not paying attention to it. And it's important because it's taking place before our very eyes. Right before our very eyes when we are at our, shall I say, probably our most purblind. All right. A uh, special uh, treat coming up for you. You've heard me and Ann Atkinson and others talk about the Lewis Center. Tom Lewis in studio. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 